0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We are in the first chapter of Hebrews. I will be reading the first four verses. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: You may be seated. Good morning, uh, Redemption Hill Church. Good to see you. Um, We have family worship this morning, so kiddos, you are always welcome here. But I do think, um, as we offer Redemption Hill kids, I always like to highlight the importance of family worship always want to highlight the importance of children in particular seeing their parents worship and praise Jesus, whether it's through song, through the the listening and the receiving of God's word, or as we celebrate the Lord's table. So uh, family worship is never wasted. However, if you get restless, I understand, I get restless Uh, kiddos, we have a Restless Kids Room just right across the hallway. So if that serves you, uh, we pump in the audio into the Restless Kids Room. So we do have that available if that serves All right, I uh, typically don't wear uh, Iowa paraphernalia unless uh, I have a good cause to. So as many of you know, Afton Clemens won the uh, NCAA bracket, picked UConn to win. Winner got to tell me what shirt, what collegiate team I wear uh, on Sunday morning. And so here I am. It's not Iowa State, which she graduated from. Thank you. Save me from that mercy. You know, you're merciful. Thought it was going to be Nebraska, which would have been humiliating, but in honor of the uh, women's team making the finals, she said, where are Iowa? And I'm like, you, you betcha <laughs> I'm wearing Iowa. So that's what's going on. As many of you know, um, we're camping out in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we will take a break you know, here, here or there, of course. But this is an excellent opportunity for you as we go slowly through a book to be prayerful, as you go through the book of Hebrews, uh, slowing down through a book affords you the opportunity to kind of get into the weeds of God's word. I know many times in like in my devotional life, you read something and you know you read it and you kind of check your box and you move on. And you know it's good to be in that consistent mode in terms of devotions. But when you actually slow down, you get to see a lot of the details. And I hope to do that for you in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, one person contacted me this last week and said, "Hey." What was that commentary on the book of Hebrews that you recommended? I'd love to read that at home as you preach through it. And I think that's another great idea. Um, For some of you, maybe you like to journal. Journal through the book of Hebrews. I think that's good as well. Parents with children, take time to discuss what you hear from each sermon. Kids, young and old, as we go through Hebrews, push yourself. I don't care what age you are. If you can read, push yourself to really understand what God says in the Bible, in particular Hebrews. So whatever you do or do not do, I hope you can take the opportunity to kind of like soak in the waters that is the book of Hebrews. I entitled this sermon, The Supremacy of Christ Over All Things. Like, if you step back a little bit, that's a, like a lofty title. <laughs> Supremacy over all things. But I chose it because today's passage tells us that Jesus is supreme. I, I think the title is deserving based upon the content of today's passage. And like a good introduction to you know any book that you might read, what we see today will end up being, being woven throughout the entire book of Hebrews. So, it's a lofty title. And I need God's help in order to explain that title well as we look at Hebrews 1. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, your Son indeed reigns supreme over all things. And indeed, as Dean prayed, I admit and confess I am needy this morning in need of your help. don't feel equipped to preach such an important text. And so I need you, oh God. Holy Spirit, I trust that you indeed would be at work, and be at work in my dear friends in front of me this morning. I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the words that come from your word would not go through one ear and out the other, but would indeed Shape our mind and our hearts and our lives. I pray that a result of this sermon would be a greater affection for our Lord and our King, Jesus Christ. Help me to lead these folks to that end. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What words can I use to convey? what we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. I could put the question back at you. What words would you use to convey what you read in these four verses? I have to admit, for me, it is not easy to put into words the how how marvelous this passage truly is and what it is conveying to us. But here's one path I am choosing to take this morning. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 4 shows us what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. If you're in the classical education world, these characteristics you're familiar with. If you are a Christian living in the first century, and hearing these words for the first time, you would quickly identify these classical qualities in the introduction to the book of Hebrews. These qualities are objective. Uh, Stephen Turley helped me to understand truth, goodness, and beauty, and they're going to help apply this to today's text. And he said this, truth, goodness, and beauty are cosmic values, and those cosmic values need to come from somewhere that communicate divine meaning to the intellect, moral, and aesthetic capacities of the human soul. So it has an impact on your life, which brings a balance in the soul, which in turn harmonizes the human person with divine meaning and purpose of the cosmos, which was considered the prerequisite to human flourishing. From Hebrews Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we see what is objectively true. God's word is divine truth. And we can say with certainty, God is truth. From this particular passage, we know what is objectively good. Namely, God is good. And his goodness is seen at the creation of the world and at the cross. And from this passage, we can objectively see what is beautiful. God is beautiful. In particular, you can trace from this passage the beauty of God's plan of redemption. From a a literary perspective, if you're like an English teacher or like a Greek teacher, the original Greek is beautifully written. It's one of the most beautifully written passages in the New Testament in the original language. It tells a beautiful story. Allow the truth, goodness, and beauty of Hebrews one verses one to four. I hope to make an impact on your on your soul this morning. You know, I, I just couldn't. You know, usually I start a sermon, I give you a story or analogy, and I just couldn't think of anything to help describe this. But truth, goodness, and beauty resonates with me, and perhaps these qualities will resonate with you as we walk through this passage. Last week, we looked at Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, and in particular, the first half of verse 2, and we saw that God has spoken, and God has spoken decisively through the Son. You might remember from last week that I challenged you, challenged everyone with this question. God has spoken, but are you listening, right? He has spoken, A Christian can never say that God is not speaking to me. Because <laughs> all you got to do is pull out his word. He has spoken. He continues to speak. Are you listening? That was, that was the punch. That was the main theme from last week. It is incredible that God has spoken and he continues to speak. The author of Hebrews, I just think he comes out swinging with this introduction. God speaks and we have the privilege to hear. So the logic of verses 1 to 4 is clear. If God has spoken preeminently through the Son, which he has, then what is it about the Son that should cause us to listen to him? That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. He's trying to give you reason. This is why you listen to the Son. What is it about the Sun that should cause us to stop in our tracks, drop everything and listen to him? Well, that is what today is all about. Verses one to four, in particular, this, the second half, verse two and verse three define the sun for us, and also tells us the story of redemption. Redemption through the sun. It is this last point that hit me for the first time as I studied this passage earlier this week. It's, it's easy to see how the Son is described, the Son of God is described, but I want to show you how the flow of thought from the author of Hebrews shows us the gospel. The truth and the beauty in this passage could not be more obvious. Could not be more obvious. So here's how the Son is described. and I kind of broke it up into six sections. The Son is an heir. The Son created all things. If you got, if you got kids' sermon notes, these are good to write down. We see that the Son is God. The Son sustains the world. The Son suffered and died for sin. And Jesus, the Son, currently reigns from, he- from heaven. I mean, think about everything that's up here. That's packed into a verse and a half, and just a verse and a half. If you're not listening to the Son of God right now, I plan to give you at least six reasons to listen to the Son, at least six reasons. Let's look at all six characteristics that define the Son, and then I'll show you the string that holds these characteristics together. Um, need to be concise, because obviously each of these points is like its own sermon. Before the creation of the world, God the Father and God the Son made a covenant, which was confirmed by the Holy Spirit. A part of their covenant is that the Son willingly took on flesh and dwelt among man to see God's people saved. So before Genesis 1-1, the covenant between the Father and the Son is God's plan of redemption. The covenant of redemption also ensured that the son is going to be the heir over all things. In the Old Testament, we read that God gave an inheritance to Israel. And Israel, he gave the inheritance of the land of Canaan, right? The land flowing with milk and honey. God gave them the land, but God's collective son, Israel's called collective Israel is called a son at times in the Old Testament, God's son eventually squandered their inheritance. Just squandered it. It's like, thanks, God, that now we're gonna live however we want to live. I'm gonna go worship that idol. <laughs> but not so with the Son of God. Psalm 28 is about Jesus. And we read: Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. The Father gave all things to the Son, and He, the Son, is not about to squander the inheritance. The Son even inherited a more significant name than the angels. That's verse 4. Here's a popular quote um, highlighting the inheritance of the Son. I've used this before, and some of you may be familiar with it. It's from a theologian. Um, He is since he's died, but he's a former prime minister also of the, of the Netherlands. So he's a theologian and a prime minister. It's Abram Kuyper. He said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I love that quote. I never, it never gets old using that for me. Because it's so true. Jesus is not heir over part of creation. He's not heir over 90% of creation. He's heir over all things. You know the Greek word for all in verse 2. You know what it means? All. (laughs) Everything. If you're a Christian, this truth impacts how you live and how you view the world if you let it affect you. Your house belongs to Christ. Your car belongs to Christ. Your bank account belongs to Christ. Parents, at the end of the day, your children belongs to Christ. Everyone in this room, whether you are acknowledging it or not, you belong to Christ. He's heir over all things. Life looks different if you believe all things first belong to Christ. Does it not? looks very, like, I don't know if you're the same way, but I'm so used to holding on to things for myself. And how often do I say, this is mine, two young kids fighting over a toy. That's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, over and over and over again. And what we have to say is, nope. It belongs to Christ. A reason why, but not the only reason why, the Son is the heir of all things, is that he created all things. He created it all. I hope you can see like the clear connection here. Here's the second part of verse 2 that puts together inheritance and creation. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir over all things, through whom he also, he created the world. Now, I find, I find the Greek word for world interesting. The most common word, uh, Greek word for world is cosmos, so cosmology, right? It's the most common, I think, Greek word in the New Testament, which translated into world. But that is not the word used here. The word here is ion, which is often translated as ages or forever. Now I take this to mean that Jesus not only created the physical and temporal, but he created what is seen and what is not seen. I, I quoted uh, Colossians 1 last week, and I'm going to go back to the well, because the well is so sweet. The water in the well is so sweet here. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so why do we hold on so much to our things when at the end of the day, the one who created the world is heir over all things? He created all things. And before sin entered the world, everything was perfectly good and perfectly beautiful. The situation is not like a home builder who builds a house and then hands over the keys to another tenant, and the new tenant has authority over that house. Like nothing could be farther from the truth. Instead, Christ built the house, and he maintains his authority over the house, even though God has allowed you to live in the house, and God has charged you to be a steward and take dominion over the house, God ultimately has authority over that house, He is Lord, and you are in service to the Lord. Again, through creation, even though what God has created is marred by sin, we can still see goodness and beauty because the fingerprints of Christ are all over what he has created. Go to the Rocky Mountains. You see the fingerprints of Christ all over his creation. Go to the Grand Canyon. I am amazed by the massive power of hurricanes. The fingerprints of Christ. Where I live, fields go from green to gold and harvest season. It's beautiful. There's beauty in that. Fingerprints of Christ all over that. Nothing like seeing soybeans go from green to gold in that one week. Beautiful. All reveal beauty. Verse three sheds more light on who created the world. We know, but this part of verse three is a gem. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Some some verses in the Bible are like mind blowing. You just read it, you are like, what does that mean? You know, the first part of. Hebrews 1.3 is that verse for me. The glory of God is seen through Jesus Christ. It says the Son has the exact imprint of the Father's nature. The author of Hebrews packs a lot of theology in only a couple verses. And in verse 3, he speaks about what we call Christology. Here's a heady but I think helpful quote. The first two clauses in verse 3 focus on the nature of the Son. Showing that Christology here is not merely functional, but also ontological. I'll explain that in a moment. The Son is the King and Creator because of who He is, because He shares the nature of God. So the word ontological means like studying the nature or being of something. That's what Schreiner means in his quote. But what I find fascinating, and again, I'm going kind of going back to the Greek language here, is that the word for nature in verse 3 is used to describe Christ all throughout the early church. I mean, they're, they're taking their cue from Hebrews 1.3 to describe Jesus. Our confession of faith, which is historically connected to great creeds and confessions of church history, also upholds this truthful and beautiful description of the Son of God. Here's just a little bit of what it says. In, his, in this divine and infinite being, there are three persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are of one substance, power, and eternity. Each has the whole divine essence, yet the essence is not divided. This statement in Hebrews 1.3 is crucial because only God can create and sustain a world. It is a brilliant piece of writing. Because think about, think, think about the flow of thought. First, we have this statement that the Son created the world. And then we have another statement, kind of bookend, that He sustains the world. And in between these two things, it says that Jesus is God. He is the one who creates and sustains. My uh, Master of Theology degree focused on an early church father named Gregory of Nyssa. And he provides, I think, a brilliant statement about what it means for the son to have the exact imprint of God. It's a little longer quote, but I think it's worth reading. And I quote, The majesty of the father is expressly imaged in the greatness of the power of the son. Like, pause there for a moment. How powerful does one need to be to create the world, right? I can barely make a Lego castle, and he created the world. That the one may be believed to be as great as the other is known to be. Again, as the radiance of light sheds its brilliance from the whole of the sun's disk, so too all the glory which the Father has is shed from its whole by means of the brightness that comes from it, that is, by the true light. Even as the ray is of the sun, for there would be no ray if the sun were not. The sun is never conceived by existing itself without the ray of brightness that is shed from it. And he closes, so the apostle delivered to us the continuity and eternity of that existence which the only begotten has of the father calling the son the brightness of god's glory. It's a longer passage. Let me just explain one thing here. And we can never press analogies too far, but I really like what Gregory is saying here. If the sun in the sky ceases to exist, then the light ceases to exist. However, the sun in the sky does exist and the light of the sun cannot be avoided. You cannot miss the brightness of the sun. In Christ, all the light of God is manifested. Christ is the radiance of God's glory. You walk out after church. That sun's out. It's always out. No cloud cover today. That's a good thing. And those rays are going to hit you. And so the glory of God is also seen through Christ. His radiance is seen through Christ. Now, here's the fourth of six descriptions of the one who speaks. The sun upholds all things. Often I remind my kids before bed that the air we breathe exists because God chooses to uphold it by the word of his power. God chooses to allow the air to exist. The author of Hebrews does not embrace a deistic notion of creation, right? God did did not create the world and then sat down in the lazy boy to drink a margarita. Not at all. If this were the case, humanity would have burned down the world a thousand times over. Nope. The personal and powerful word of the Son sustains the universe. What is also implied in this expression is that the universe will reach the intended goal and purpose of God. God's will will be worked out. Jesus, who upholds all things by the word of his power, continues to be at work through the Holy Spirit to bring about redemption and restoration in all that he created. And thank goodness me and you are not in charge. Thank goodness. Because if Sean Power were in charge, I would have messed things up in a nanosecond. Everything would be a spectacular hot mess. It would be like that gif that I I often send to people of a trash can that's on fire that is floating down a flooded river. (laughs) That's what life would be like if it was me trying to sustain something. Listen, by now, I hope you see how God is sovereign over all things. God is in control, even though the news tells us, you re- watch the news or you read the news, even though the news tells us it's chaos. The sovereignty of God is fundamental to our theology, It's foundational to what we know about the character of God and how he creates and sustains all things. Everything I've said thus far is the backdrop for the final two descriptions of Jesus Christ. We read in verse 3 that Jesus made purification for sins. The notion that Jesus made purification for sins is a sneak peek of two themes that will emerge later in the book of Hebrews. First, Jesus can make purification for sins because he is the great high priest. In the Old Testament, the high priest cleansed the sins of Israel, oftentimes through animal sacrifice. The whole idea of animal sacrifice is foreign to many Christians and a, and a big hang-up for non-Christians, right? It really is. We don't have a category for animals being killed in particular as an act of worship because all of our food, it comes from the grocery store, right? We just, it's pre-packaged. Like I remember I was a junior, a senior in high school. I, I went to High vee in Dubuque. I had to pick up chicken for my mom. And I remember walking from the back of the store, heading up to the register, and looking at this pre-packaged chicken, thinking to myself, where did this come from? Like, we just don't have this category. It's it's foreign to many people. Few people pick up a package of chicken from the grocery store and think to themselves, huh, I wonder how this was killed. (laughs) How did it die? However, if you've ever butchered an animal for food, then the concept of animal sacrifice actually makes a little sense. It makes more sense. If you were to transport back yourself in time, like you get into the DeLorean, like back to the future, and you go back, like there were no refrigerators. The food you gathered was just as valuable as money. So giving your best calf as a sacrifice to God was an act of worship, like giving financially in our day. Also, if you've ever butchered an animal, the principles of life and death are heightened for you. There's a sobering reality that a life that has a beating heart is in your hands. In a sense, you are the priest to that animal. To remove the blood of the animal is to take life away from the animal. I'm not trying to be crude, I'm trying to help you understand what it means for Jesus to make purification for sins. Jesus, the greatest of all priests, does not offer an animal to make purification for sins. He offers himself. So, Jesus is the priest, and Jesus is the greatest sacrifice. The blood of animals no longer needs to be spilled, He is so great that we no longer need to pull out the goat or the lamb from the field. The doves can remain in the sky. It is through the blood of Christ that God's elect are made pure, cleansed for their sin. Here is part of that sneak peek from Hebrews 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When you read, he made purification for your sin, your mind should go directly to the cross. It is at the cross where your sin was nailed, and now you sit here, Christian, Cleansed by the blood of Christ. On, on Friday, um, I, had, I had taught the five solas uh, to a bunch of 7th and 8th graders. Faith alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So we were actually engaging in thoughts about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, along with a lot of its implications. And one of my students in the eighth grade raised their hand and asked, Mr. Powers, you constantly remind us that we're wretched sinners? Sometimes I open class and I say, good morning, wretched sinners. (laughs) So she's like, so you call us that? Yet, what does God the Father see in us if we're still wretched sinners? Good question. My response was twofold. First, despite indwelling sin, right? Right? That remains. Jesus has cleansed us of our past, present, and future sins. And that is a yes and an amen. Second, when the Father looks down, he first sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the one who made purification for our sins. He sees Christ in you and all around you. The greatest high priest and the greatest sacrifice is how we have been purified from our sins. Wretched sinner that I may be, but I am saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. It's through Christ in which, ha- in which we've been forgiven. The final description of Christ is that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. What is assumed in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4, in particular verse 3, is that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. This final description is like the cherry on top of all these beautiful descriptions about the supremacy of the Son. The acknowledgement that the Son is currently seated at the right hand of the Father is meant to provoke in us further thoughts about Christ's rule over the world. Listen, you do not rule over the world. Christ rules the world. Politicians and bureaucrats think they rule over the world, but they're just puppets of the one sitting at the right hand of the Father. For years, um, I've been hearing from the media that the most powerful person in the world is the president of these United States. You definitely hear that every four years but you hear it all the time most powerful person in the world and the statement's not true it's not true the one who sits on the heavenly throne has more authority and power than the one who poses in a chair in the oval office and I don't care who the president of the United States is don't care It is true that God's people are to steward and have dominion over God's creation. Absolutely, that is true. But everything we do isn't subject to the one who created and sustains the world and is currently sitting as king next to the Father. Have you ever wondered why some of my uh, emails, email communications end with like King Jesus? It is because the king is on the throne. He's actively sitting on the throne. Now, what is the thread that holds together the creator of the world? Verse two, second part of verse two. The one who is reigning from heaven. Now, verse three. The answer is the the supremacy of Christ in redemption. Supreme, not only in the rescue of God's people, but the redemption of the entire world. Christ created the world. He is heir over everything he has made. And in, th- in and through Christ, we see perfect truth, goodness, and beauty because he is the radiance of the glory of God. The Son is the same essence as the Father. And then we see that the Son holds up all things. Every molecule comes under the authority of King Jesus Jesus. Everything I've said thus far, I think from Hebrews 1, is stunning, but there is more. We all know that sin is the real problem. Sin separates man from God, but the creator of the world is merciful. And in love, the creator and sustainer of the world took on flesh to redeem his chosen people. What love it takes for the one who created all things and sustains the air that we breathe right now, would die for our sins. Philippians 2, 6, 8 summarizes what the Son of God has done for his people. I didn't know Ryan was going to quote that earlier, but I'm going to do it again. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of, of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christian, your sins are forgiven. You've been cleansed because of Christ. But we also read in Hebrews that the story of redemption is not over. It's not over. The story is still unfolding. Christ reigns on high as king. Back to Philippians 2 real quick. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen indeed. The story is still unfolding but every knee will be bent before King Jesus. You can plan on it. All will know and confess that Jesus is Lord. Even those in hell who have rejected Christ as King will know that he reigns supreme. I I recently read uh, Dante's Inferno. All nine layers of hell. (laughs) Dante tells us an allegory of hell. It's an allegory and Dante depicts many people in hell knowing that Jesus is king but they rejected his kingship James 2:19 even the demons believe in Jesus but they've rejected him as well I said last week that another good title for this sermon series through the book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater the reason for this title is what we see in verse 4, which is the lead in to next week's sermon. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Next week, we will look at the first direct comparison to Christ, one of many comparisons throughout the book of Hebrews the angels. And we will look at why Christ is greater or superior to the angels. Until next week, here's my challenge for everyone. As individuals or as families, go back to Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 4 and take time to identify what is true, what is good in this passage, and what is beautiful. Talk about these three qualities